The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very good Monday morning to you. Asian equities rally as 15 countries in the region signed the world's largest trade deal in a move labelled as a coup for Beijing. The deal includes China, South Korea and Japan, but not India. For the first time, President Trump publicly admits Joe Biden won the election but refuses to concede while the president-elect prepares to meet vaccine makers as COVID cases across the US top 11 million. Well, on this side of the Atlantic, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson goes into self-isolation after holding a meeting with an MP who later tested positive for COVID-19 as tensions within his inner circle remain high. The president of Emirates Airlines, Tim Clark, tells CNBC he expects the carrier to return to profitability within 18 months, voicing optimism over testing and travel corridors. I would think that in the in the um, the year 22-23, and for us that is uh, starting the 1st of April 22, uh, in that year we will return to profitability. Three, two, one, zero. SpaceX launches its Crew Dragon spacecraft into orbit, making Elon Musk venture the first time a private company has launched astronauts into space. I think that last story encapsulated everything we need to tell our audience today about uh, what's going on for markets. About new frontiers, rockets launching into space, some missiles, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Economic data. <laughs> Three, two, one, liftoff. A slew of data from China this morning pointing to an accelerating recovery in the world's second largest economy. Industrial production rose 6.9%. That was ahead of expectations as the regional rebound helped support exports. Exports. Fixed asset investment between January and October also outpaced forecasts, growing 1.8%, almost a full percentage point higher than last year. Meanwhile, retail sales came in slightly less than predicted, but still grew 4.3% as consumer demand continues to rise in China. Well, let's look at the market reaction uh, stronger across the major markets in China, as you can see. It was just another catalyst for these markets to drive forward. We saw last week the appetite around news of a vaccine and what that did for many of the Asian markets, including China. And there's been a little bit of nervousness around uh, technology IPOs and after the Ant Group one was pulled. But investors quickly regrouping around this data point. You can see how strong it is for the Shanghai market. Nearly 1%, 3342 on the index, Jeff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about why the enthusiasm, not only the Chinese data, of course, but 15 Asia-Pacific economies have now agreed to form the world's largest free trade bloc. China, Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand were among the group that signed the regional comprehensive economic 
partnership at a conference in Hanoi. The trade pact accounts for 30% of the global economy, covering over $26 trillion in global output. The US is a notable exclusion from the deal, but we should probably also point out India is not in the deal either. The one to watch. And if you look at the market reaction, stronger across the region, as you can see, uh, the, the Chinese data, along with this trade news, very positive catalyst for the market. Japan trading higher by 2%. Hong Kong up half of a percent. We just looked at the Chinese market up a one percent. Australia has been a really interesting one. This is where you would expect to see some of the dynamic, given how tough trade tensions have been lately over a range of very interesting items that are quite key to the Australian economy. And particularly during a pandemic, you look for that support to come through from any trade relationship. But there's a technical glitch on the ASX today that's impacted trade. So it's hard to get a read through into just how strong the market would have reacted to some of this news. Well, let's talk a little bit more about not only the data, but this uh, new trade deal. Sam joins us uh, with more detail on what this means for the region. Good morning, Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, Beijing has described the signing of this deal as a victory of multilateralism and free trade. And I mean, you only have to look as far as some of the editorials in Chinese state media today to really see that they are very much echoing that against the backdrop of these rising uh, US-China tensions, but also trade tensions with other uh, players in the region like Australia, but also amid this talk of decoupling. And so interestingly, uh, analysts over at City have pointed out that perhaps the diplomatic message may be just as important as the economics in a coup for China, uh, also pointing out uh, that this reduces the perception perhaps that Beijing is looking more inward now with this uh, dual circulation growth strategy that's very much been pushing uh, lately. And so we have seen uh, the mainland markets in the green today off the back of this uh, trade optimism in the region. But as you rightly pointed out, investors have certainly been uh, digesting a raft of economic data, which does continue uh, to show that the economic recovery is continuing into the fourth quarter, although it does suggest uh, that we may have a while to go. But I'll start with those industrial output numbers because they did uh, beat expectations coming in line with September's numbers, even though China had that big uh, national holiday at the start of the month. So this would mark the seventh month now uh, of growth for industrial output, really adding to this first in, first out story. The industrial output numbers have certainly been uh, driving this economic recovery uh, so far as we have seen a strong domestic demand with that this government support for infrastructure spending, which has been used to sort of mitigate these external risks. But actually, some economists have pointed out that, uh, you know, China does usually tend to wind down a bit of industrial output, uh, certainly during the colder months to sort of reduce uh, pollution. But certainly with, uh, you know, economic growth being very much a priority at the moment post-COVID, that this environmental situation may not be uh, at the forefront of their minds at the moment. Now, those retail sales did miss expectations, but I think, you know, you have to look beyond the headline number because uh, they still did grow faster than September, making it the third month of growth now uh, as, you know, consumption has really been lagging this recovery so far. And of course, we do need to remember that China did celebrate that big uh, golden week holiday, which uh, would have helped uh, consumption and given it a little bit of a boost and interesting uh, catering, which has uh, been very much suffering uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, grew for the first time this year. And so, you know, I certainly think uh, that this does suggest that confidence is picking up. And uh, certainly this does suggest that this is being a more consumer-led story than perhaps the fisc asset side of things. Steve, back to you. Excellent work as ever, Sam. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at the performance of the yen year today. It's up 3.6% versus 
the US currency. Lost a little bit of ground so far this year, 1.7% versus the euro. Um, but the Nikkei 225 has gone fantastic performance, really, off those March lows, hitting uh, record after record in terms of its year-to-date performance. This comes as the Japanese economy grew 21.4% in the third quarter. That makes a record rebound. The recovery was sharper than expected as consumption and exports picked up. Japan has announced two stimulus packages worth a combined $2.2 trillion to help the world's third largest economy snap back from the worst slump since the Second World War. Now, on a quarterly basis, the economy grew 5% after taking a nearly 8% plunge in the previous quarter. Jeff, good morning to you, my friend. Yeah, very good morning, Steve. Let, let's bring in another voice on this and let's talk a little bit about the uh, data and the outlook for the global economy. Panilla Henneberg joins us, Vice President for Global Economics at City. Good morning to you and welcome. Before we get on to the, uh, the trade deals and uh, the stories around the Asian data this morning, Panilla, um, we've obviously got a rise in COVID cases in Europe and the United States at the moment and we continue to monitor their impact on economic activity. Just bring us up to speed with the latest analysis from City. What do you think the impact currently is on growth and how does it fit with previous forecasts? So our European economists already in the latest round of our forecast update were out revising downwards quite significantly to the European economic projections. Uh, the projection uh, for this year was revised down by 0.5 percentage point. That's quite a significant revision so late in the year. Uh, but it's of course reflecting that Europe is challenged by the rise in COVID-19 cases uh, and the lockdowns being put in place. For next year, there was also a downward revision to the European figures uh, of uh, one percentage point. Uh, so, so clearly putting um, a bit of um, uh, concerns into what we can expect uh, of growth going into next year. We have um, a strong move in Asian equity markets this morning, built largely then around the uh, RCEP deal and the expectations that this will help cement growth and Chinese economic leadership in that part of the world. How significant do you believe this deal is? And are the moves we're seeing in these markets justified by the news? So uh, our Asian economists have a note out uh, this morning looking at uh, the deal uh, and they call it a mega deal. But in terms of the economic impact, that may be less uh, than what is reflected uh, in this mega trade deal. Uh, We're seeing the data out of China this morning and and while it's continuing to increase, uh, we need to take a disaggregated look, both when we look at retail sales, when we look at industrial production, and also when we look at the policy initiatives that have been put in place in China, comparing those to the rest of the world is not straightforward. Just digging into the weeds of some of the data today, what, is it, what do you make of some of the, the appetite we are seeing for consumption also for the auto sales? I mean, the auto sales number seems to be driven by the electric vehicle component in the market. So what do you make of how well the government has done in restoring confidence around the economic story on the back of coronavirus and where the gap still may be for the government at this point? So in China, the support has, uh, in contrast to the rest of the world, been focused on production, getting people back into the factories. 
Many other places of the world has been focusing on the furloughing scheme and on the consumption, ensuring that we can return to some kind of normalcy on the other side of COVID-19. Uh, of course, China has been helped by the fact that COVID-19 has been spreading much less fast recently, and that has implied that people can get back into the uh, factories. Uh, but when you speak about the retail sales, it's really just a minor of the consumption overall. Uh, we also need to consider the services, uh, and services are much larger share uh, of the consumer uh, spending than just retail sales. Retail sales has been supported by all the online sales that, of course, has been doing well in a year driven by fear and containment measures. Uh, in China specifically, um, online sales account for nearly 25% uh, of retail sales. Panilla, many of us have been watching the China markets and China economy for this first in, first out kind of mentality around coronavirus. I was quite stunned by the commentary today. There were some suggestions that already there's a debate that has begun that we've seen this improvement in data in China since the second quarter. And, and maybe authorities should consider lifting interest rates or, or tightening monetary policy at some point. I think that's quite staggering. We just got a couple of quarters of OK data that starts to cross. Already we start talking about tightening policy. Is there some messaging for European economies, for the US economy down the track, if there is a vaccine and you see a quick recovery, that we may be having these conversations about tightening policy sooner rather than later? So China already has a much tighter monetary policy than many of the other economies. So rates are not at the zero lower bound and they are not doing QE. So there is already some risk of capital inflow creating asset bubbles in China, something we have been highlighting. In the advanced economy, there is still a lot of focus um, on continuing to support the economy. Additional support is required from a monetary policy uh, perspective, but also from the fiscal policy makers. Uh, we have been analyzing what is required. And one challenge is that you have the very high debt levels uh, in requiring that the monetary policy continues to keep um, funding costs for the governments very low in order to ensure that we do not have debt sustainability concerns. So we have actually moved a little bit into what you would call a modern monetary theory framework, uh, simply by the policy initiatives taken from fiscal and monetary policy authorities. So, so, so Penilla, just to follow up on, on Karen's question, your excellent answer as well. Are they prisoners of these high debt loads then, the central banks? They daren't raise uh, interest rates, even if they see any hint of inflation, any smell of inflation in the global system because of those enormous debt levels built up at these record low levels. Are they prisoners of their own policy? So if we start uh, considering the inflation perspective, uh, we think it's hard to find evidence of inflation rising. Clearly, there is inflation within the financial markets because of all the stimulus coming from the central banks. But from monetary easing affecting financial markets and eventually transmitting into the real economy, we are not seeing evidence of that. So, so the first uh, concern about inflation rising is not something we see justified in the data. Uh, because central banks are now present in financial markets, uh, th there may be um, some sense of a requirement for them to continue to stay there and continue to ensure that government bond yields stay low, even though there will be um, issuance from the governments, uh, because they also need to continue to support the economy with new coronavirus cases uh, rising in some economies, uh, but also uh, still not enough support to ensure that there will be a recovery. Uh, in growth.
Josh, one day, Penilla, we will talk about inflation that's real there rather than concerns in the clouds. Right now, another interesting point you've made in your notes is about um, the unevenness of the potential recovery and the huge populous EM nations wanting to get hold of vaccines but not being able to get hold of them in 2021. So where, who are going to be the winners and who are, perhaps more interestingly for many people, who are going to be the losers uh, in terms of they're just going to have to wait and just going to have to be very patient in terms of getting their economic rebound? So our Asian economists have looked at this, and if, if we assume that the vaccines that are being considered now are to become uh, deployed, uh, and we start to see that uh, happening in the second quarter of this year, then the uh, developed economies uh, in Asia-Pacific are those that at first will reach herd immunity. China, that we spoke about before, probably has to go into early 2022 before they will see herd immunity. And some of the more populous uh, emerging markets uh, will take even longer uh, before they can reach a state of uh, herd immunity. Of course, China, uh, as we said before, has been helped by the fact that um, virus has been spreading much less aggressively. Uh, but, but of course, uh, we need to make sure that the, uh, everything is more sustained uh, further down the line. Vanilla Henneberg, thank you very much for joining us. This is our Vice President at Global Economic City as we talk through that data out of China today. We've got news crossing from the Spanish lender BBVA and uh, just crossing the wires now. PNC Financial Services Group has said it will buy the US business of the Spanish lender BBVA for $11.6 billion in cash, uh, which uh, does mark further consolidation in the US banking sector. This is the second largest US banking deal since the financial crisis back in 2008 and uh, creates a US bank with nearly $560 billion worth of assets and a presence in two dozen states. So what we're hearing here is a slight shrinking of that uh, presence uh, in the United States, you'd have to say, for BBVA as it refocuses on other markets. And uh, I think at one point there was a lot of concern about doubling down on the Spanish market for a lot of the lenders because of all of the problems we saw last financial crisis. Now you've seen uh, some improvement on that mindset and you've seen banks uh, like Santander as well also try and reduce their exposure in other markets away from Spain where they don't have market share. Not necessarily doubling down at home, but they are concerned about the presence being spread too wide and they're not having that uh, economies of scale story in some of these markets. No, I think I think you make a terrific point. And I don't have a big comment on this particular deal. But again, it, to my mind, it just reverses the desire of uh, central banks and um, uh, treasuries to see greater cross-border M&A activity from the European banks. And here we have a story again of a retreat. This is about consolidation back into well-understood uh, traditional markets, and it is not the kind of linked-up global cross-border activity that increasingly the, uh, um, the central bankers and uh, domestic regulators were hoping to see. You know, we've talked a lot about how Europe consolidates its own banking sector. That wasn't perceived to be by retreating from all other markets. Okay. The idea ultimately was that we got consolidation through cross-border activity. And again, here we have a situation where current conditions are just encouraging the management of banks to be ever more conservative and to somehow shrink their way to growth. 
what's fascinating is the timing too. I mean, don't forget we're watching the US election coverage closely still, uh, the tussle that's going on between President-elect Biden and President Trump. But there is a view now too, as uh, many M&A experts read the tea leaves, that maybe there won't be a whole lot of regulation coming for those US banks on the back of uh, a Biden victory. So uh, this one pressing ahead in the United States, and you think about the regulatory backdrop on the back of the financial crisis, uh, there was a wind, wind back in recent years versus some of the increased regulation we had initially. And that's been very positive for that consolidation story around the regional banks. So it seems a vote of confidence uh, in the Biden administration these very early days. The U.S. should engage more with Huawei. That's according to Paul Scanlon, the CTO of Huawei Carrier Business Group. Arjun spoke to him as part of CNBC's East Tech West coverage and got his thoughts on how the Chinese tech giant will interact with President-elect Joe Biden's new administration. Whenever there's a change in uh, a change in government, there is always the opportunity to reset relationships and things. There's always, I, think, I believe that there's always the case to do that, and perhaps. Now the opportunity for Huawei is to, to rethink about, and perhaps even the US, to rethink about the strategy both ways. You know, should we have been more proactive? Uh, should there, first of all, there should be more dialogue, okay? We would welcome more dialogue. That's the most important. With dialogue comes understanding, and then understanding comes trust, and then people can do business together. There have been a number of other countries that have looked to bar Huawei from the 5G rollouts in their respective countries. Sweden is one of those, uh, of course. Um, how are you dealing with, with an increasing number of countries that have looked to shout out Huawei from 5G? First and foremost, Huawei is a technology company. You know, we're very good at R&D. I think we've proven that by how successful we've been in providing high-quality products. Yeah? So I think so that, that's terribly important. And we're, we're a good sales company. You know, we understand how to, manage, how to manage the sale process and then the execution process. I guess perhaps we're not a very, we weren't as good as we could have been at marketing or government and other engagements, perhaps. Yes? If you come from a technology background, you try and do all the technical things you can. And, and what we've been trying to do to date has been, you know, engaging with governments in industry. So if a government and we have the relationship wants to inspect the products, then we, we show the products. We show everything that's inside the products, okay? So they can put their experts, bring their experts to us or us to them, and we can sit down and demonstrate that the, that the product is trustworthy. Still to come on the program then, uh, President Trump appears to say Joe Biden won, but refuses to concede defeat as concerns mount over a smooth transition of power in Washington. We'll have more on the story when we come back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
markets bouncing back Friday's session. You can see the Dow out in front again versus the Nasdaq. Again, this pivot that we saw at the start of the week on the vaccine news returned by the Friday session. It was quite a roller coaster week of rotating uh, through the various asset classes, then back again, an overall market sell off, and then the market being bought back Friday's session. So we had pretty much everything across the trading week. In terms of the big moving stocks for the Dow, it was Boeing versus Cisco for the S&P and the Nasdaq on the back of earnings. But uh, across the broader markets, we did see a second pause a week in a row. And that was also another catalyst, too, as we weighed up a lot of the news flow around vaccines, uh, the U.S. election, some positive catalysts. And what we had, a momentum uh, shifted of money into the markets, $32 billion worth in the week to Wednesday, as uh, markets saw the biggest commitment of money in about two decades. This is according to data from EPFR. So investors no longer sitting on the sidelines when it comes to moving money into markets. Uh, U.S. futures, this is how we perched ahead of the session today. We are looking firmer at this early stage for the Monday session. Jeff. Thanks very much, Karen. The total number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has now surpassed 11 million. This, according to NBC News, following a record spike in nationwide daily infections last weekend. Several states, including Washington and Oregon, have also put new restrictions in place. Over 246,000 Americans have now died from the disease. The top health advisor to President-elect Joe Biden has said he would not support a full nationwide lockdown, calling it a tool of last resort. The former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy argued that targeted local measures are needed, adding a complete shutdown would hurt jobs and the economy. Elsewhere, Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, says the president-elect's top coronavirus advisers will meet this week with drug makers working on a vaccine. In an interview with NBC's Meet the Press, Klain also warned the distribution of a treatment may be delayed if there is no smooth transition of power in Washington. Joe Biden's going to become president of the United States in the midst of an ongoing crisis. That has to be a seamless transition. We uh, now have the possibility, we need to see if it gets approved, of a vaccine starting perhaps in December, January. Uh, There are people at HHS making plans to implement that vaccine. Our experts need to talk to those people as soon as possible so nothing drops in this uh, change of power we're going to have on January 20th. So President-elect Joe Biden has narrowly won the state of Georgia, marking the first time the state has voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in almost three decades. That's according to NBC News projections. Meanwhile, President Trump also picked up a victory uh, in North Carolina, bringing uh, the final tally in the key electoral college to 306 to 232 in favour of Biden. Wasn't 306 the level where uh, Mr Trump said he had a landslide last time around? I think it might have been. The president has refused to concede defeat, as we've been hearing all morning, despite appearing to admit that Biden won the race in a weekend tweet. Trump has repeatedly insisted, without any evidence cited so far, that the vote was fraudulent, adding that he will eventually prevail in the election. You've only got to look at the weekend press in the US to see how the president at the moment is suffering a string of defeats uh, in the courts as we go on. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.